From the Carnegie Tsinghua Center in Beijing, China, this is the China in the World podcast, hosted by Paul Hanley. My colleagues and I at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center had the honor of hosting Jonathan Finer, a Harvard Spring Fellow and John Kerry's former Chief of Staff and Director of Policy Planning, this past week as part of our Carnegie Global Dialogues Middle East discussions. John and I discovered during his trip to China this week that he and I actually occupied the same chair in the National Security Suite on the first floor of the West Wing. At different periods of time, when each of us worked in the White House, sitting between the National Security Advisor and the Deputy National Security Advisor. A Rhodes Scholar, John previously worked at the White House as an advisor to former Deputy National Security Advisor Tony Blinken, as well as Vice President Joe Biden. Before that, John was a journalist where he covered the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq in 2003, Israel's conflicts with Lebanon in 2006 and, the, and Gaza in 2009, as well as Russia's war with Georgia in 2008. We were delighted to have John out so soon after leaving office this past January to share his own views as well as hear from a, a variety of Chinese on pressing issues across the U.S.-China relationship. In this podcast, John and I discuss the major milestones of the Trump administration in its first 100 days and what it indicates for the future direction of American foreign policy. John shared his insights on how past presidents' policy at the end of their term have often been quite different from what they did in their first 100 days. Ahead of the Belt and Road Summit here in China next week, John and I also discussed his views on China's Belt and Road Initiative and the prospects for future engagement between the U.S. and China. Thank you very much for listening to China in the World podcast, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jonathan Finer. John, it's been great to have you out here in Beijing with the Carnegie Tsinghua Center this week, and thank you for joining the China in the World podcast. Um, you know, you just spent seven and a half years in the Obama administration and now at Harvard uh, with the Institute of Politics. So we're we're honored to have you out here this week. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, President Trump uh, recently hit his 100, 100 day mark um, and there's been some criticism that he's not been able to achieve many of the things that he himself set out to do during the campaign and in the transition. Um, you focused in the administration quite often on Middle East uh, in your work with Secretary Kerry, Vice President Biden. Um, and I wanted to get a sense from you um, what you think, if anything, we might be able to learn about the Trump administration's approach to the Middle East after the first hundred days. Is there, can we begin to sketch out some outlines of what we might expect? Sure. Uh, thanks, Paul, uh, and appreciate the question. Uh, I'm going to start off by doing something a bit unusual uh, for me, which is uh, agreeing with President Trump uh, about something, which is that this 100-day uh, marker is a bit uh, arbitrary. It's mm -hmm. a, a more of a media deadline than a, than a, than a marker that exists uh, in the real world. Uh, I actually, in, in coming out here, looked back at, at some of the uh, accomplishments and developments of the first 100 days of the Obama administration 
uh, in the Middle East. And what you realize uh, quite quickly is if you had drawn too many conclusions based on that period uh, about what the Obama administration's policy would be for the rest of its term, uh, you would have been uh, off by a mm. fair bit. You know, it looked mm-hmm. like during the first 100 days of the Obama administration that you, know, you might have a, a war uh, with Iran as opposed to a nuclear deal uh, with Iran, or that uh, the U.S. Uh, might withdraw all of its troops uh, from Iraq and, and leave the region uh, in the rearview mirror as opposed to uh, where we ended up at the end of the Obama administration, which is uh, having returned a bunch of troops uh, to Iraq uh, to fight uh, a different kind of a war yeah. uh, against ISIS. So. Uh, with that caveat, uh, I will say, though, you can, I think, start to see some early indications of what the Trump administration's approach uh, to the region uh, is going to be. Uh, there are at least a few signals that you got uh, from the campaign and from some of the early comments that the president has made uh, that he's going to want to uh, be tougher on terrorism than he believes that his predecessor, President Obama, uh, was, that he is going to be uh, tougher also uh, on Iran than the Obama administration mm-hmm. was. He believes that the Obama administration was a bit too conciliatory mm-hmm. uh, to Iran in making the nuclear deal, and that he is going to want to avoid, uh, again, drawing a lesson maybe less from Obama than from the Bush administration, uh, wars uh, that, that, in, that entangle the United States mm-hmm. uh, in the region. He called those during the campaign uh, quagmires, mm-hmm. which uh, I think is a view that a lot of the American uh, people would uh, share. What, But one of the things that we see out here in China as we look at the administration's China policy is the things that Donald Trump talked about in the the campaign that left us with the impression that there would be major departures uh, from the previous policies of Obama or Bush. Uh, In fact, we're seeing somewhat more of a a consistent approach. how is that dynamic playing out with respect to policy toward the Middle East? Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think some of us who watch the region uh, closely have been surprised to see areas of continuity where we expected change and areas of change uh, where we expected uh, continuity. So uh, on the, the first uh, side of the scale, I think we expected to see a big difference in the way the new administration fought terrorism uh, because uh, President Trump was so critical of the Obama mm-hmm. administration's approach on, on the campaign trail. What we've seen in reality uh, has very much been an extension of the Obama administration's uh, focus on ISIL and uh, uh, decision to, to fight on any number of fronts, including the military, but also uh, countering foreign fighters and uh, mm. foreign financing uh, and uh, the ideology uh, of the group. On Iran, you know, where we might have expected the new administration to be uh, tougher on the nuclear deal, what we've seen so far, and it's still very early, is uh, that the new administration has uh, certified to Congress that Iran is in fact complying mm-hmm. with its obligations uh, under the nuclear deal. Although we've also, I think, seen some indications uh, going forward uh, that they are going to be scrutinizing very carefully Iran's uh, compliance, but also Iran's uh, broader activities uh, mm-hmm. in the region. But so far, they're another area of kind of unexpected continuity. A third area of continuity that we might not have expected has been on Israel and and Palestine. You you heard some comments from the president during the campaign uh, that he was going to lean very far in the direction of Israel Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of uh, uh, that conflict. And what you've seen so far is some pretty tough comments, actually, from the administration on Israeli settlement activity and a Mm -hmm. warm embrace uh, just recently of President Abbas, uh, who was Mm -hmm. just in Washington uh, visiting Mm -hmm. the White House. And then where we might have expected continuity from the new administration, uh, this uh, non-intervention that I just mentioned earlier, the desire to avoid uh, quagmires and, and uh, military activity uh, in the region, you're actually seeing, I think, uh, some signs that they are following a more militaristic uh, approach mm-hmm. in, in the mm-hmm. Middle East than we might have expected in places like Yemen uh, in terms of increased troop numbers in Iraq and uh, Syria. 
uh, and then uh, some indications that, that other conflicts like Libya and potentially even mm. uh, more uh, confrontation with Iran, you know, you might see increased military activity on those issues as well. And that's not something I think we expected mm-hmm. during the campaign. And how much of this has to do with the kind of people, the composition of the team that he's he's building? Is that uh, what can you learn about the advisors that he's bringing in and the people that he's putting into the key positions, whether it's national security advisor or cabinet secretaries? Sure. I think uh, well, one significant development uh, that is a break uh, from the recent past has been uh, an emphasis on uh, military personnel and military advice uh, to some extent at the ex- expense of uh, diplomatic intelligence, uh, more sort of soft power uh, approaches to making uh, foreign policy. What you've seen is a president who has decided to surround himself with a large number of former or active duty military officers on the National Security Council uh, and fewer diplomats, fewer uh, intelligence professionals. He has uh, populated the top ranks of the new administration with, for example, a Secretary of Defense who is a, a retired four star uh, general a national security advisor who is an active duty uh, three-star mm-hmm. general. Um, at the same time, uh, in terms of uh, the other tools available to foreign policymakers, diplomacy and development, you've seen a, a desire to slash dramatically the budget mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. State Department. You've seen an unwillingness, at least so far, to fill many of the most senior jobs in the diplomatic uh, core. Uh, and frankly, just a, a de-emphasis of diplomacy as a sort of desirable uh, tool of first mm-hmm. resort uh, in making foreign policy, which is a big break from the Obama administration, which came in very early on uh, signaling that diplomacy yeah. was going to be where they yeah, put their weight. Mm-hmm. Secretary Tillerson now, uh, Secretary of State, uh, gave a speech this week. And something that he also said, which I'd be very interested in your perspective on, which is uh, he talked about what America first policy means for the foreign policy of the Trump administration. And one of the points that he made was that the foreign policy of the Trump administration would be driven by U.S. interest and not so much primarily by U.S. values. How do you sort of react to that, and how do you think that will affect Trump's approach to the Middle East region? So uh, the way the Obama administration thought of this uh, divide between interests and values is that actually it was a bit of a false choice, Mm -hmm. uh, that... Uh, pursuing our interests meant pursuing our values and, and vice versa. That these were sort of mutually uh, reinforcing, you know, acknowledging that sometimes there were uh, tensions, uh, but that overall, uh, you know, you could accomplish uh, both uh, of these uh, objectives. What, what Secretary Tillerson uh, seemed to signal in his uh, speech uh, this week to the State Department's uh, workforce was uh, that the Trump administration sees uh, interests and values as often colliding, often mm-hmm. uh, in tension, and that uh, when those collisions occur, the administration is going to side squarely uh, with uh, the pursuit of interests and against uh, necessarily the pursuit of, of values. And I think we're already seeing that play out a bit in some of the early steps uh, by the administration in terms of the warm embrace uh, that President uh, al-Sisi got in uh, his visit uh, to Washington, something that President Obama uh, had not done uh, mm-hmm. during his tenure. And uh, the other a key early example, I think, is the phone call that President Trump placed uh, to President Erdogan in the aftermath of the Turkish referendum uh, through which uh, President Erdogan seized a a lot of uh, power inside uh, Turkey's uh, democratic system uh, and brought that power into the office uh, of the presidency. That troubled, I think, a lot of uh, American observers of Mm -hmm. Turkish politics, uh, but but the president chose instead to call President Erdogan and congratulate him Mm -hmm. uh, for what was a very narrow uh, victory in, in that referendum. By the way, I think some of this is going to be very well received. Yeah, I was gonna say, in China, I think this will be very well received. 
the idea that interest will drive the relationship with China, not values. Um, how does that play out in the Middle East? So I, I think uh, very similarly. Yeah. I think there are uh, countries in the region, including uh, key U.S. partners uh, like the Gulf states, uh, like Egypt, uh, which I just mentioned, and like even Israel uh, to some extent, where there have been areas of friction with the United States when the United States took issue with some things that these countries were doing internally within mm-hmm. their borders. Uh, issues on which uh, these countries uh, believe that the United States was interfering mm-hmm. in their uh, affairs, similar to some of the, the friction that sometimes exists in the U.S.-China uh, relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there may be an opportunity created uh, for the new administration by essentially taking some of those uh, issues off the table. That said, uh, whether that actually benefits the United States uh, to take uh, areas of, of our own values and, and, and stop uh, the pursuit as opposed to simply benefiting these countries uh, to no longer have mm-hmm. to answer to, to us on some of these questions really remains to be seen. The, another sort of element that we see within the Trump foreign policy approach is this idea of ambiguity. Um, we talk about it a lot with respect to his approach to Asia. And I'm sure, uh, you know, you can you can also examine it in the context of the Middle East, uh, this idea that he doesn't want to be predictable. He wants to use unpredictability. How do you think about the issue of, of ambiguity um, as he tries to use this as a, a tool uh, for him to deal with countries or regions where U.S. has interests? How does this play out in the in the context of the Middle East? So President Trump spoke quite quite harshly during the campaign about what he thought uh, was a naively uh, predictable approach by the Obama administration. He, he would caricature the idea that uh, the Obama administration would say, you know, we intend to launch a, a military operation against Mosul uh, in Iraq in four months. And then uh, in three months, uh, make the same statement and say, you know, this right. is coming. Yeah. Uh, everybody be, be on the lookout. And, and his view was that this telegraphed uh, American uh, steps uh, to our, our adversaries and our enemies and, and that this undermined our ability to accomplish our uh, objectives. Uh, you know, he clearly believes that a degree of ambiguity in making uh, foreign policy uh, makes sense. And I think on a tactical level, there can be some benefits mm-hmm. uh, to ambiguity like this. I mean, one of the things that you hear from talking to foreign officials about how they are approaching the Trump administration is that they find the Trump administration very hard to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, they listen to very carefully to public statements that are made by the Secretary of State, by the Secretary of Defense, by the President, by the UN ambassador. And they see sometimes contradictions in these statements. They don't know how to interpret uh, Mm -hmm. U.S. policy. Now, if there is, in fact, a strategy behind that ambiguity, perhaps uh, that could create uh, a degree of effectiveness uh, for the new administration. But Mm -hmm. I think the concern that a number of us have is that uh, this ambiguity is not, in fact, uh, strategic, not, Mm -hmm. in fact, designed to accomplish particular uh, objectives, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but actually just a reflection of their inability to get everybody on the same page in right. terms of talking points, which really right. is, is less strategic ambiguity mm-hmm. and more uh, simple confusion. And it's hard to see mm-hmm. how that advances uh, mm-hmm. American goals. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the reasons I would imagine for this yet, it, I, it's my sense you don't see um, the, the national security policy process working quite yet. Um, it still seems to me to be a White House kind of run like a family-run business where you have a, a good, uh, highly qualified national security advisor in place, but we don't seem to have the key people throughout the administration. This is something that you've written about recently. How do you think that's affecting the degree to which the Trump administration can employ an effective foreign policy? So process is a pretty um, 
boring concept uh, to a lot of people who have not worked in, in, uh, in national security and in foreign policy, but it's important yeah. uh, for, for the following reasons. Uh, one is that, uh, and you don't see this as often on the domestic side of policymaking, but in national security with the stakes uh, so high, what people tend to think is important is having all of the people around the table who have a degree of expertise uh, so that mistakes uh, are not made in the development of policy yeah. because someone who might have known uh, a better way uh, wasn't there to raise an objection. That's one reason why you want a, 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 an inclusive uh, policy process. The other yeah. reason, you know, frankly, a bit more uh, practical is that it's not the White House that actually implements foreign yeah. policy. It's the departments and, yeah. and the agencies. And if yeah. they are not included in the policy discussions, yeah. it is very hard for them to know what exactly is intended and how they are supposed to do their jobs of right. implementing right. Uh, the administration's uh, approach. The, the best example of this uh, so far has been on the travel ban, yeah. which the White House seemed to decide on more or less in a very small group, mm -hmm. not even of uh, people on the National Security Council, but mm -hmm. political advisors very close uh, to the president. It was issued late on a Friday night. Yep. Uh, most people who were supposed to implement it from the State Department or the Department of mm -hmm. Homeland Security actually read about it in the yeah. press. Hadn't been brought into the process. Hadn't been brought into the process. And the result was just mass confusion yeah. of all these yeah. people uh, being stuck in airports, right. uh, protesters, right. demonstrators, right. and a just total lack of clarity right. about how this, what this process was intended right. to uh, right. accomplish. And there have been other examples uh, like that, but, yeah. but there's a cost. You know, I make, John, I make a similar point often, and I think... This point about process, um, I, you know, I see, I agree with you uh, very much, is, is very, very important. It may have to do with the fact that you and I occupied the same seat in the first floor of the West Wing as the advisor, or in my case, we call the executive assistant to the deputy national security advisor. When I worked for Steve Hadley and you worked for Tony Blinken, it was that job actually that made sure the process worked. At least that's part of the job that I had. Was that similar when you were there as well? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And uh, particularly the deputy national security exactly. advisor job yeah. uh, in some ways is, I think, the hardest job yeah. in foreign policy making because the deputy is responsible for such a broad range of foreign policy issues that maybe never quite rise to the level of, of mm -hmm. cabinet officials, of principals. Uh, considering that, or the president, the, or yeah. certainly the president, the yeah. deputy has to be familiar with with all of them. And, yeah. uh, and it's I you totally see agree. the importance of the process from Absolutely. that from that job. And one of the things Steve Hadley said all the time was, "You've got to have the buy-in of the agencies because your point, they're the ones who are going to have to implement it." So I I agree with you very much. I want to sort of end by talking about you know you've been out here for the last few days. You have talked uh, to Chinese experts and and. Uh, senior influencers and uh, media about um, U.S. approach to the Middle East, and you've heard from Chinese interlocutors about China's approach to the Middle East. And one of the things that I think may be relatively new in terms of China's policy to the Middle East is the, Chi is the Belt and Road Initiative. And we heard scholars talking about the importance of the Belt and Road Initiative with respect to China's engagement in the Middle East. And I wanted to just get your general reactions uh, to the Belt and Road Initiative and, and just get a general sense from you how you think it'll impact China's approach to the Middle East. So I, I guess I'd start off by saying I think all of us are still learning yeah. exactly what this initiative, which used to be called a strategy apparently now has been uh, renamed an initiative, yeah. is going to consist of. It, it sounds, uh, at least for now, like it's going to be largely um, big infrastructure uh, projects in the, in the development uh, space, but uh, the specifics, I think, are still uh, being worked out or at least uh, have not yet been revealed uh, publicly. But based on what we know uh, so far, it sounds like the Chinese are going to attempt 
to uh, enhance their role in the region and enhance their relationships, at least uh, with the 22 countries they maintain uh, diplomatic relations with in, in the region, uh, through a series of bilateral projects with mm-hmm. each of these countries. And that they desire, for now, to not uh, make a major foray into the politics of the region, which mm-hmm. they consider, uh, I think, messy, but to, to say, stay above uh, the political fray and pursue mm-hmm. this uh, economic agenda. I think there's a real risk frankly, to the Chinese uh, in, in attempting that. Uh, and I think there, there may be so far an, an underestimate, underestimation as to uh, how hard it is going to be to stay out of uh, politics when every step in one country will be viewed potentially mm-hmm. by a rival country as a step against its interests. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's going to be hard, I think, for them to avoid the political fray. Similarly, on, on the U.S. side in interpreting mm-hmm. this uh, new initiative, I think there's a very real risk of being too dismissive Uh, of it uh, or too antagonistic uh, toward Mm -hmm. it, the way arguably the United States was uh, toward the Asia Infrastructure Investment Mm -hmm. uh, Bank. I think there actually is an opportunity here uh, for the United States if uh, people are open uh, to it and engage with the Chinese on it to try to collaborate and at least uh, in the early stages to try to shape this in a direction that is uh, positive from the point of view of the region and from the point of view of Mm -hmm. uh, U.S. interests, especially at a time when the new administration has signaled its own desire, frankly, to get out of the development mm-hmm. business in the region. Mm-hmm. Uh, if the Chinese are going to be occupying that space, it would be good for the U.S. to, to work with them on what their intentions are. Or to at least know what, what the Chinese are doing. And, um, you know, when, when we've had discussions with Chinese about, you know, the idea that the United States' dependence on oil and energy from the Middle East is actually declining, China's is increasing considerably that perhaps China needs to step forward and do more to help maintain stability, whether that's on the security question or the political question. Um, And what we've heard from Chinese in response is, look, why don't the U.S. has much more capacity and capability on the security side, so why don't you handle the security element and we'll deal with the economics. I can't imagine that that would be a bargain that the Americans would be interested in. And to a certain extent, if it, it seems to me, and I'd be interested in your reaction, if we dismiss the Belt and Road Initiative, um, and simply deal with the security issues through a military approach, which you've described, you know, we could end up over time getting to that arrangement without even having agreed to it. Right. A, a de facto division of labor between the U.S. and China, where the U.S. handles the security and military side of maintaining stability in the region and China reaps the economic benefits is clearly not in the interest uh, of the United States. And I think it would be doing that would be forgetting what I think is a big lesson of recent Uh, U.S.-China relations, which is the most fruitful areas for U.S.-China cooperation really have been these big uh, global challenges outside Mm -hmm. necessarily the the sort of near uh, abroad uh, for China or the bilateral uh, relationship between the U.S. and China, but on issues like climate, Mm -hmm. uh, where the the U.S. and China have made history-making enormous uh, progress on the Iran uh, nuclear Mm -hmm. deal, where Mm -hmm. the U.S. and China with other countries kind of got together to tackle uh, this enormous uh, global threat of of nonproliferation. And, uh, and here's another example. Development of the Middle East is going to be a huge uh, security issue, frankly, uh, for the world in the aftermath of, of some of the disruptions uh, caused by the Arab Spring. There will literally need to be uh, hundreds of billions, if not trillions of mm-hmm. dollars invested mm-hmm. in the region to get it back to the uh, condition it was even in before uh, mm-hmm. 2011, let alone uh, on, on a stable development mm-hmm. uh, path for the future. And, and the U.S. and China are two of the countries really uniquely positioned mm. to try to advance that work if they can 
uh, get on the same page, even mm -hmm. to, to, to some extent. I it's, think it's an opportunity. It seems to me that the U.S. administration would um, would be smart to find the balance between, as you say, the risk of dismissing it uh, to a certain extent, which is what happened with the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and the United States. United States find found itself uh, or, or looked as though it was, number one, insecure. Number two, it was weak because it couldn't convince countries not to join. And then in the end, it was isolated. Um, I think there's some lessons, as you suggest, to be learned from that on one end of the scale. But fully embracing it, as you say, there's it's not fully clear how this is going to play out, whether it will work. There's a lot of risks in it. And so fully embracing it is not, uh, you know, not, 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 not an approach either. But there's got to be some middle ground where the United States can think of a smarter strategy to engage it, help shape it, better understand what it is, um, and avoid some of the some of the some of the potential risks uh, to U.S.-China yeah, relations. I think that's right. I mean, given the extraordinary challenges uh, in, in in this region, it is hard to imagine that this initiative is going to be the panacea that solves uh, the problems. Right. Uh, that said, you know. It can either be a force uh, for some good or something else entirely, and uh, I think U.S. engagement with it uh, gives it a, a better chance of, of being at least somewhat successful than it might otherwise be. Well, John, thank you very much again for coming out to China. We hope you'll come back soon and visit us often, and thank you for doing the China in the World podcast. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. That's it for this edition of Carnegie Tsinghua China in the World podcast. I encourage you to explore our site and see the work of all our scholars at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center. Thanks for listening, and be sure to tune in next time. <laughs>